Hello, hockey fans. We're back from the Thanksgiving break. Thanks for joining us today on Saturday. Spend a little time with us talking hockey. We've got a lot to catch up on. The Golden Knights, five in a row, six to seven. What's going into their current hot play? We've got two guests today. We're, we're stacking them up. Derek Helling's going to join us. We're going to talk about the business of hockey and, and uh, some of the things like the concussion lawsuit that was settled, uh, collective bargaining agreement, lockout potential, that kind of stuff. And then Rob Soria is coming in again, author of Connor McDavid, Hockey's Next Great One, and also a blogger covering the Edmonton Oilers. We're going to talk about McClellan out uh, how how things look in Edmonton now. There's been a couple roster moves since then. We'll talk about that and and a whole lot more coming up. So stay stay tuned. We'll be right back. All right. Thank you for tuning in again on Saturday. Uh, we've got hockey on right now. We've got a lot of hockey to talk about. But first, Chris, good day to you, sir. How was your holidays, buddy? It was very good, sir. I hope, uh, it sounds like uh, yours was good as well. And by the way, that Rob Soria, we booked him before the coaching change. So that was Nostradamus-esque, if you will, or two on, our, on our past. Yes. Yeah, yes. But, uh, uh, I mean, it's good. But the last yeah, and, uh, well, you know, uh, as of 2 o'clock Eastern, still no news on William Nylander. So if that drops during this hour, we'll uh, we'll talk about it. But um, the last time we spoke was a critical time for the Knights. They uh, they were, I, I, if memory serves correct, they were starting that five games in seven days two weeks ago on our last show. And uh, to say that they came through it with flying colors is the ultimate understatement. After uh, I think it was in, was it Calgary? They had a bad loss in there. I think it was Calgary. But other yes. than that, they went four of the they Good. went four of five, and uh, uh, then they come back off that seven game seven uh, five and seven, and they go on the road again, and they finish the road trip tonight in Edmonton, and they've already won the first two. So they've won six of seven. They're they're in a very good place in the uh, in the Pacific, and you know all you know now just kind of get back to being who they are and, and you know, stacking up the wins, if you will, and stacking up, you know, the points. Obviously, you're not going to win every game, but, you know, you win two out of three and you just keep stacking. And if they can do that, given where everyone is in this division, uh, they're going to be in a good place. Yeah, real real quick, I wanted to get to this, regardless of everybody's politics, uh, best wishes to the Bush family, the uh, 41st oh, president yes. of the United States, passed away, uh, regardless of everybody's politics, he was uh, uh, a very, very public servant, a family man, and uh, had dignity and character throughout his presidency and his life, so best wishes to the Bush family, RIP George Herbert Walker, sir. Absolutely. He had a very interesting life if you go and just Google all the different things he's at different jobs oh, yeah. he had and going back to the CIA and things of that nature. But uh yes, absolutely, absolutely on that on that front. All right. Well let's get to the Golden Knights. We talked about um uh, my my goal for the Nate Schmidt absence was 20 points in 20 games. They came up at 17, but uh, they got to 25 points in 25 games. So that leaves them uh, 75 points left to gather for what you would assume would be a playoff spot in the West at 100 points. It's a little over. I don't know. I, I end up 
in the Pacific to get in the top three, 95 might be do it. I, 100, oh, yeah. you might win the division. Yeah, well, well, for sure, the way things are going right now. But I always look at uh, the the 100-point will get you in if somebody goes crazy yeah. and you're stuck in a wild-card spot or what have you. That's pretty much a benchmark, I think. So, I mean, 70 yeah. to 75 points the rest of the way is about 1.35, 1.4, check my math, um, per game. Um, so they're, they were, they're a little bit over 50% right now. So if they just kind of maintain course um, – that they should get in the, we called for a second place finish in the Pacific. The yesterday they were in second place today. They're out of a playoff spot. That's how kind of tight it is with the ducks winning last night. Um, but if, if they, if they take Edmonton tonight, they will be back jumping into, uh, it's second spot there in the Pacific, uh, just behind Calgary who continues to play well. And, you know, sometimes you need to get kicked in the teeth before, you know, you need to get back up and going in and, and getting a seven spot dropped on them in Calgary, uh, they started the they started that four out of five, which we said was crucial, or five five and seven. Um, four out of five is what I said they needed to do, or they were going to be in big trouble. And they did do the four out of five, the the one that they started good in Edmonton. Uh, I would have, then, I would have been happy with three out of five, but yeah, yeah four yeah. out of five is tremendous. Um, and got they they just got punched in the face. In, in Calgary, there's no other way to do it. But you know what? Since that game, and it coincides with Nate Schmidt being back, I think those are the two biggest factors for their improved play. Um, Nate Schmidt coming back, you you have your same defensive pairing in the top four that you had last year, so everybody's comfortable with each other. The defense, and and more importantly, and and it it, it I don't know. We were talking this week, and and it's a lot different than say baseball, where if your second second baseman's out you put your other second baseman in and it doesn't really affect anything else in the lineup. Uh, when you, when your number one defenseman goes out, hockey fans know, and maybe, maybe some of the newer hockey fans in Vegas, um, th- don't really know the intricacies of how that works, but you got to bring in your seventh defenseman and he might end up playing in your second pair just based on right hand, left hand puck moving, stay at home, whatever. And, and there was a lot of times Merrill was in that second position. Brad Hunt came in a little bit and when you're shuffling in and out like that on your defensive pair and guys are playing up above their station, they're playing more minutes, they're playing penalty kill time they wouldn't usually see, um, the, the, the dynamic that's, that's really you can't quantify is, is the comfort level you have with the forward groups that you play with. You, you know, you, usually when your first and second pair is out there, you have a certain D pair that, that will cover them, so to speak. And if the timing is off with the forwards coming back to – you know, in the, into your defensive zone, then the timing is off when the, when you're trying your breakouts and your your five foot passes, ten foot passes to to start your breakouts aren't connecting. You're turning it over at the neutral zone, and it it, it creates a lot of chemistry dynamic that a lot of times it's hard to quantify, but you're just looking at it and you're knowing that it's not right. And I think that's a lot of the problem that the Golden Knights had early in the season was the the chemistry. And it, it, the second line's been been a puzzle piece here, a puzzle piece there. And now um, we'll get to patch ready in a second. But um, so that, that chemistry within the forward group and the chemistry in the defensive pairs and the chemistry between the defensive pairs and the forwards they're used to playing with has all just not been settled so far this year. And with Nate and Schmidt also, coming back, go ahead. No, I mean, Nate Schmidt has a big impact. I mean, he helps them offensively. He's, all, he's good in his own going zone. He's on both specialty teams units. So his his impact is, is, is you know, this is not a I think it was understated. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, you, you get some defensemen who are real good in their own zone and they do all the little things. And don't get me wrong, when they're out, you really miss them too. But his impact is pretty far-reaching. I mean, he's one of their core players. So, uh, uh, yeah, that, him coming back is a is a big boost. And then um, at I, I don't know if coincidence is the right word, but all of a sudden – and I've been critical of Max Pacioretty. I'm not. I'm not here to to say I haven't been. I, I, I've seen him gliding along, trailing a three on two, and that's not Golden Knights hockey. Uh, whether you think you can get back or not, the name of the game in Vegas is hustle and hard work. Um, that's what got them to the Stanley Cup final last year. It isn't because they have the the greatest player in the world in Connor McDavid or Sidney Crosby. Um, or, or a group of high-skilled forwards like Tampa Bay has put together and, and same in Washington, is because they worked harder than everybody else last season. And we, when you see a player and your, your team is struggling and he's a new guy, it's easy to pick him to be a target. And I, I, I myself said when, when you're, you're the third forward back and, and there's a three-on-two going the other way, if I look up at the blue line and your stick's across your knees and you're gliding into the zones, that's not Golden Knights hockey and I'm going to slam you for it. And I, I notice, and, or if you're coming down on the wing and you, you pull up at the half wall and you just kind of float there to see if anyone can get the puck behind the net and if it comes around, you dump it back in and you're not moving your feet. And I saw a lot of that. And, and maybe it's because it's new line mates in and out every night. Maybe it's because you're in a new place. You're used to being a captain and you don't know how aggressive you need to be. There's probably a lot of different things that go into uh, what Patrick was struggling with. But since, since that Edmonton or the Montreal game, really, he had 10 shots on goal in that game. He's moving his feet. He's skating hard into the play. He's actually finishing checks along the walls and in the corners. And he's doing the work it takes to get into the slot. And, into, and that's where his office is. Uh, you know, Ovechkin and Sam Coast like the left circle. Um, we've seen uh, three two-goal games out of him and, and two other games where he's got a goal. He's got eight goals and five assists in the last, you know, ten, ten days. Um, and it's because he's working harder. He 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 has a steady line now with Eakin and Tuck. They're developing their chemistry, but Pacioretty's doing the work to get to the slot, and he has one of the quickest snapshots in hockey uh, that I've ever seen. And when he'll do the work and get into position to use that, he's lethal. And early in the season, the first 20 games, I don't, I'll, I have no problem saying I don't think he was doing the work to get to where those spots on the ice. You know, they say pay the price to get to the dirty areas or whatever you have to say. Um, I, he was not doing that work. And now comfort level with line mates, um, good chemistry with the defensive pairs being what they are now settled. Excuse me. Um, he is doing that work and he's getting rewarded for it. Um, and, you know, the, those are the two reasons I think that the, the Knights have, have gone on this little mini run. Very important. Um, six of the teams have been against division opponents they've climbed right back into the race and i don't i'm not saying that that it's all pork chops and applesauce they still have work to do cleaning up a lot of things in their own end um vancouver exposed them that there's still some work to be done although they did get the win on a beautiful shorthanded goal from riley smith um he did all the work and and william carlson got the tap in so um, they did get the win, but there is still a lot of work to be done structurally to get back to where they were last season. But it, it's it's good to see them rolling four lines again. 
uh, Hallmark Vegas Golden Knight Hockey, where you, they, the fourth line will get it in the zone. They'll keep it in the zone while they change lines. They'll come back out, change lines again, get it right back in the zone. So they're starting to get to that point. And, and I think, you know, none too soon, sir, none too soon. I think what just happened was, and I think you nailed it about Pacioretty's season, but listening to what you just said, your inner Barry Trotz just came out. Listening to Barry Trotz's press conferences, practice day, post games, playing the right way, doing all the little things, playing to get, you know, for winning hockey. I, I could have sworn I was listening to Barry Trotz and how you broke broke it all down and the differences of well, doing you, those little things <laughs> and, bring, and putting in the right things. But I think you nailed it uh, perfectly. Uh, these last few games, you can see why the Knights gave up such a premium price to get Pacioretty that the, uh, in terms of when he does all those things and everything comes together, how impactful of a player he is. So hopefully, you know, there was, a, like you said, a learning curve and new city, new market, getting used to things, teammates, and, you know, and uh, uh, maybe it was, I'm sure it was pointed out to him about all those those kind of mistakes he was making and, and on the tape and all that good stuff. But I want to get to one quick thing before we could jump in around the league, and that is, um, you know, I don't think it's a problem uh, at this point, but just a red flag I kind of feel is, you know, Marc-Andre Fleury has played a lot of games so far this year, and I know he's yep. used to playing a lot of games, but he just turned 34, and he's a very spry 34, so don't get me wrong. But uh, as we've seen in past years and past teams, uh, we go around the league and stuff. Uh, I, it reminds me of uh, Tampa Bay and Vasilevsky, who hit a wall at some point last year. He was able to bounce back from it. But they're going to have to, you know, start playing Subban uh, a little bit more because, let's face it, I mean – uh, right or wrongly, in terms of the Golden Knights, a bit spoiled. Uh, you know, year two here, year one went to Stanley Cup Finals. So if if come playoff time, you want, you know, you, like you said before, the big reason why the Knights uh, got to where they did last year was because of their, you know, their hard work, their tenacity. And then I would throw in also the play of Marc-Andre Fleury uh, on top of that. So you need him to be at his best and fresh come playoff time, uh, that's not going to happen if you're playing him whatever pace he's on, which is a very ridiculous high pace. Uh, and I yeah. get it. They needed wi- they needed wins. They needed to get their heads above water, which they now have. And the schedule's gotten a little bit better. So, but they're going to have to they're going to have to play Subban a bit more. I'm just I'm just raising my hand, saying, you know, let's let's be careful here and and not and not uh, burn out um, Mark Andre. Well, he's played 23 of the 27 games. The 27, so, so that's a lot. That's a lot. You you have a, it's a valid point you make. And last year, um, with the, you know missing the first part of the season, he only played 46 games overall, which is you know probably a, a, a reason he was so fresh and and solid for yep. for the playoff run. And if you've already played half as many games as last season, and you're you know, in November, basically, um, it is something to keep your eye on. I, I, I thought, and I, and you know, Coach Gallant, Coach of the Year. I'm not, I'm not telling Coach Gallant anything, but in that, in that five of seven, and you had to have those wins. So I mean, you had to do it. But I would have I probably it. gone. 
gone back to back with uh, Edmonton and Calgary and had Flurry go both those games. Then he gets a day off. Then you go Subban in Arizona, which is, I mean, no disrespect, but Arizona is a lot, a lot uh, simpler competition than Calgary. Calgary's on fire before that. So then you have three days rest for Flurry, and then you can go back to back again, Calgary and San Jose, and then two days rest before Chicago. But he went with Edmonton, uh, Edmonton, Flurry, Calgary, Subban, and then he's almost forced to to run the string with Flurry after that that thrashing in Calgary. Um, look, Gallant knows what he's doing. I'm not, I might've been an area that that they could have looked at is, is you could have gotten him three days rest and then two days rest. And, and instead of kind of forcing him into three games in four days based on, on you have to have the wins, you know what I mean? And I I was thinking that maybe that was a spot where you could steal a rest in what looked like a busy schedule, but no, you're right. There's going to have to come a time when, and and look, oh. PK Subban hasn't played that good this year, so I there's a hesitancy but he to was, get there. But he was good last year, and to be fair to him, he's only played in four games. You know, it's hard to be <laughs> as a, in the yeah. goalie in the goalie position if you're going to wholly play your backup. You know, you're asking a lot. I don't care how good the backup is. To, okay, right. we're, you know, we're going to play you once every two and a half weeks, and you throw him in there. You know, in his case, I think he played the Calgary game. And it's like, oh, okay, well, we're playing a good team, so just you know, we expect you to play a stellar game. I mean, you got to play the, you got to play your other goalie a bit, uh, make a little bit of an investment to get. And like I said, he played. I know his numbers aren't good, but he played in four games. So, uh, you know, last year he played well. No one's saying that he's going to play the majority of the games, but from here on out, there's got to be a, a little bit, a little bit more of a, a reduction. Uh, if you will, but let's jump into around the league. Well, hold on, hold on. I got about some breaking oh. breaking news. Oh, uh, breaking news! Uh, as I okay. sit here, the alert the alert comes up. Mark Andre Fleury named third star of the week. Since uh, since we're sitting here talking about Fleury, oh, it would okay. be remiss to mention that he had back to back shutouts in those those two games where he had to go back to back and uh, had four wins in the week, I believe. Let me pull it up. I'll give yeah. you a real stat. Uh, yeah, no, he did. He's won, he won four games between Saturday and last and this thir- uh, Thursday. Yeah. Last Saturday yeah. to Thursday, yeah. Four, so, four, uh, four wins, so, two shutouts. Um, Nathan McKinnon sure. and Patrick Line, the first, uh, second and first star, respectively. So, um, congratulations to Mark Andre Fleury. Let's keep it up. So you, when you said the breaking news there, sir, you kind of teased no, no. me a bit because today is <laughs> William Nylander. Yeah. It's as we speak. It's two eighteen Eastern time. Uh, you talk about I never would have thought when we started the preview shows back in September that we would be at this point. December first, we knew was the deadline, five o'clock Eastern time, and here we are. Uh, he's still unsigned. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it would seem hard to believe that come five o'clock beliefs beliefs that either you know he's not signed to a deal with either the Leafs or someone else and he's going to miss the whole year uh I, I i have to hit i have to see that to believe it where the Leafs stand though in terms of getting a deal done and or either with Nylander in terms of a new contract as well as uh with or with another team in terms of a trade heard some things rumblings the last couple of days with the flyers which we'll get into them in a second but um, 
you know, it seems hard for me to believe after all this time they're going to wind up being get wind up getting Nylander at at the number that you need to get him at to make their salary cap work big picture. In fact, uh, Brendan Shanahan back in October of some time, I want to say, came out and said, "Hey, look, I mean, everyone's got to, everyone's aware, and the players have to be aware, aware i.e., Marner, Nylander, and Matthews that." They want everyone to stay together. They're going to have to take a bit less to make this all work, uh, or basically saying that about everyone on the team. And you know, it doesn't seem like that math is going to—they're going to get the math that they that they want. To be quite frank, so uh, we'll have to wait and see how this all plays out. Do you think it's still? Uh, possible he's moved in the next three hours. Yeah, I, I think I, I mean I mean if he if they could I mean at this point I mean if they would have had a deal done it would have been announced I mean at this point I it's I it's been reported that I think as of yesterday uh, on Friday it was a Pierre LeBron it was one of the big guys and basically they reached out to all the teams who and said look if you know we need to know your level how strong they already did this but. Like who's really who's really really ready to talk turkey, and you know in case this doesn't we can't get this done, uh, which at this stage of the game seems kind of crazy to me. Um, I, you know if you put a gun to my head, what I think is going to happen? I think what's going to happen is he'll probably sign like a three-year deal for somewhere in the six and a half to seven million dollar range. They'll get him in here. They'll play the rest of the year with him. And then come the offseason, uh, when they have to sign Marner and Matthews, uh, he's going to be very much talked about being moved. Uh, basically, they're not going to be able to get him uh, for the number that they want, for the years that they want. And I'm not saying he'll get traded uh, today or between now and the uh, end of February trade deadline. But in terms of the comments of, you know, well, he'll be a leaf for life, uh, I don't. I, I don't. I, I think that's looking thinner and thinner. The possibilities of that. I I think that they could do better bringing in somebody like a Dumba. Um, well, he seems that, that he he wants to play that, center too, and he's, you know, if you're behind Tavares, Nylander, and Kadri, you can't put him fourth line center. Um, right. And you could right now you could, if if you could sign him in three I, if he's traded and he isn't signed he still won't play this year so if there's going to be a deal he it's has, to, have to, know, be so, done he has soon. to be signed yeah he has to be signed yeah, by someone it, by five o'clock exactly and the, the, if there was going to be a deal today a trade today uh, you for the team I think is the Flyers I mean they fired Ron Hexel at the beginning of the week which was stunning and um, basically they said that. Well, we had a major, uh, in terms of philosophies, you know, uh, Hexel went in with a plan of building for the future, looking at the big picture, and taking the necessary steps. And basically, from afar, it seems to me they're about three-quarters of oh, along their plan. And, you know, they're yeah. not doing great this year. They're not out of it by any means. Ownership and the, and the president, Holmgren, are getting antsy and said, well, we got to do something now. We have to do something. We have to do a win now mode. And he's like, no, we got to stay the course. And they fired him. 
for it. I mean, he stuck by his guns and they fired him for it. So here's a team that has depth on defense, has guys signed long term on de- uh, both on defense and also some young forwards. They have a, uh, a treasure trove. They have a lot of prospects. Uh, they could trade. If I mean, theoretically speaking, they could trade either a Pro Bowl or a Godosphere, or you know, they got guys like Kaneki, and then they got a whole treasure trove of um, guys in the pipeline. Uh, prospects both on offense and defense. Uh, and so if they're, they might be in a mode of desperation to make a move because uh, they feel like that's going to solve their problems when their biggest problem is uh, the percentages their goalies have. I mean, I think Hextel was thinking what is, you know, was thinking smartly and, and they're, you know, it's like, wait, we, we had a plan and I know we're not where we want to be this year, but, you know, look at the Knights. They, last week and a half, they put a nice string together. We do that, we'll be right where we want to be. We'll be fine. To me, if you said to me, you guarantee me he'll be traded by five, uh, my guess would be the Flyers. Well, you, if you know what's coming up uh, in the offseason for Toronto, um you got Matthews, Marner, Nylander, Kappen, and Johnson, Lievo, and Ozaganoff are due new deals as RFAs. Gardner, Hainsey, and Lidholm is as UFAs. That's a lot of business to get done. And for yep. every, you know, uh, oh, how can you turn down the chance to make $6 million and play for the Stanley Cup? You're just – look what he's up against. If he goes into that, and obviously there's three or four people higher on that list to be negotiated out than him, and what's – he what's going to be left. And he's an RFA without arbitration rights. So he, he has the opportunity to make some money and he sees what's on the off season after this year. Um, you, you know, who's going to go to work in their office and take minimum wage when some of the guys around him that are, are already less experienced or not as good as, as them are already getting paid more than him. And the superstars in the office are, are all coming up for a new deal. And you, I, I don't blame him. I don't blame the Leafs for sticking to their guns because they're going to have to have a lot of flexibility come the off season. Um, yep. It's, it's just, I, you know, what would be great is if somebody like Carolina just offer sheeted them for $8 million right now. <laughs> I mean, that would throw the monkey wrench in the whole deal. I would well, love would, to see something like that. What they would do is they would, like they, would, they, would ma- they would match it, and then they would trade him in the offseason. It's basically right. a push game. They're going to lose him for – and the other thing is, too – Well, they'd get know, like look, four first-round picks, I think, if, if yeah, it was so, uh, like $8 million. Formula, So right. that doesn't really well, hurt either. Carolina – yeah, you might, you might not, you yeah. might. That's a good point. Catch but, fire uh, in, a you know, in a bottle. And also, there's no wrong. Like everyone says, oh, how could you not take this kind of money? And even, and, you know, look, Shea Theodore when he signed his extension, I know he's a different player, but when he signed his extension with Vegas, you know, he signed a seven-year deal at five point two million a year. Okay, he was not wrong yep. for taking a, a security deal. Now, if he would have played it out and said, you know what? If, if I, I'm a big believer in myself, and I think I'm going to be a first-pairing defenseman. So I want to take a bridge deal. I want to take a two-year deal because, you know, I'll make I'll make considerably less, but then I'll be in a position to make not 5.2 a year after two years, but what Ekblad's making or what Larson's making or the guys making, you know, defensemen making between that 7 to $8 million a year. But he said, you know what, 5.2, 
that's good and that's a good enough that you broke my barrier to sign me to that long term security deal. Obviously they haven't broken that barrier for Neilander. His number he looks at it is higher and he's has every right to, to think that. And and uh if not, sign me to a two year to a bridge deal and it'll be a lesser number and but the least that doesn't solve the least problem. They try to get him at a number, not just at a, a lower number for the cap for the next year or two. They want to get him a little number for the cap for the next several years. So then right. that this situation is solved in terms of him and gives him the flexibility to do all those other moves. So no one's wrong here. Uh, at the end of the day, not for nothing, Tavares has been terrific for Toronto. But at the end of the day, they should have realized that, you know, hey, not for nothing, but we're going to have to sign all these other guys and, you know, we are going to run a risk that, you know, giving $11 million to Tavares, um, you know, there's not going to be enough in the pie, the salary cap pie, to go around for everybody. So we're going to have to keep that in mind. And, you know, obviously they were very standoffish at the time. Uh, maybe that's unfair to say. But they said, oh, no, there's nothing to worry about. And that was unrealistic because it wasn't like they had done yeah. deals with all these guys and they knew what, you know. And the, and as we've seen, the, the the salaries for the players keep going up, 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 and up. So, um, uh, you know, case in point, you know, the, you know, with Tavares got this past summer, with Dowdy got this past summer, uh, things of that nature. Yeah, it's um, – I, I mean, you, you could make the case Matthews needs to uh, percentage-wise uh, – you said eleven million. I, I don't think he's going to start out asking for less than thirteen. Right, I agree. He's going to want more than McDavid. Now, whether or not that's good, that's going to be his initial asking price. It's going to be more than McDavid. Now, whether or not he'd be willing to sign uh, for McDavid's number or a little bit less than McDavid's number, but I tell you this. It ain't gonna be much. His number, his annual number, is gonna not gonna be uh, uh, that much less than McDavid. He's not gonna sign for for Eichel's ten. He's gonna want at least no. twelve million a year. So yeah, you start adding up all the numbers. There's there's not enough uh, money going around. And again, if you're the Toronto franchise, and with the new CBA kit coming up, and you know, and we'll get into these points with Derek Helling, you don't, and you should have a a, a little bit of an idea. You know how? What can we expect for the cap? Uh, the ceiling threshold to move. And realistically, to be fair, you're probably looking at you know probably a couple million a year, if you will. And so you're not going to get a lot of relief there. Like you said, you add up all those other players. Um, where's all? You know, you you're going to have you know 11 for Tavares, 12 for Matthews, whatever, nine for Marner, whatever it winds up being. I mean, where's all the money going to come from? So how are you going to fit a 23-man roster? On an $80, 80 $81, 82000000 dollar cap ceiling. Well, I'll tell you what. The guy that's going to tell us all about the CBA and what's coming down in the next couple of years is Derek Helling, and he joins us now on the Vegas Hockey Hotline. You could follow Derek Helling at D Helling Sports on Twitter. Um, he, he's all over the business side of hockey. He's been on the show before. Derek, thanks for coming back and talking a little bit of the business side of hockey with us, sir. Thank you for having me. So we were just, I mean, I'm sure you heard a little bit of it. We're trying to fit Marner under the cap here, and, and the, that's a good place to start with the, the CBA coming up and the, the, the option to extend it or, or opt out of it that both sides have in the current deal. Um, just 
just to start off with, are, what's the odds that we're looking at another work stoppage here as this time around? Uh, I would say it's probably got to do a lot with how much the owners are willing to give on the matter of escrow. And the flexibility in that is going to have a lot to do with how willing the players are to agree to all the other things that the owners want as far as percentage of the revenue that the players are getting as a whole um, and other labor terms that they're going to have to agree upon in order to either extend the current CBA or just, or replace it with a new one. Well, let's, let's do a, let's define escrow a little bit as it relates to the, the CBA and, and so there's a lot of guys, me, myself included, that are, are a little bit foggy on how the hockey-related revenue is distributed and how much goes in the escrow account currently. Mm-hmm. Uh, m- maybe give us a little escrow 101 and what the sticking points might yeah. be. No problem. Um, there's a percentage of the revenue, um, as you said, that goes into escrow for the players. And it's kind of like a, I guess if you want to simplify it a lot, it's kind of like a, a savings account that draws interest and then the players individually, if they record enough games during the NHL season, get a dividend like you would if you were, if you were a a stockholder in a, in a publicly traded corporation. Um, So that is, so the terms of that, how much the owners put in there, how much each player gets the number of games that they have to play to qualify is all defined in the CBA. And that percentage is based upon the revenue that is projected for the for all of the league sources that are considered hockey revenue, and that's the important term. Is it's got to be considered hockey revenue uh, draws for the term of the CBA on a yearly basis, and they set that number during the CBA negotiations. So that's basically how it works. Okay, so as the players go into and Chris is Chris is thinking this is the hill they're going to die on this time around. If it comes down, obviously the higher the percentage that the owners can put into the escrow account is, is an additional income from for the players um, above and above and beyond their their contracts with their individual clubs. And yeah. the what is the current split right now of of what gets placed into that? And what's a reasonable area where they could decide on to avoid a work stoppage? Yeah. Um, They're probably, well, the gold standard for professional sports leagues right now is the NBA. As a group, the players get about 51% of the total revenue that the league produces. And so that's what everybody else in the NFL, the, um, the uh, major league in major league baseball in and the NHL, of course, is trying to get to. Um, whether or not they will get to that number, if you combine the escrow and, as you said, the salaries that the players are making this next time around, I don't think they're going to get there just because they're, they're quite a ways off right now. So that would be a pretty big concession by the owners to get to that place where that 51% number. Um, but, of course, the players are going to be pressing to get as close to that number as they possibly can. So when the revenue is is hockey related revenue is mm-hmm. is the in arena revenue specific to each individual club, and then we're talking about hockey jersey sales and um, 
uh, other other revenue like that um or is in arena like ticket sales is that all go yeah. into the pool of hockey related revenue that gets distributed yeah, I mean, basically yeah ticket sales merchandise sales whether it happens in the arena or not um is all considered hockey revenue the okay. big thing that that this past season that came out and the and the players and, and the NHL actually went to court over this um was there's a lot of NHL teams who are receiving assistance from their municipalities that they play in or from the states that they play right. in towards their stadium costs. And Minnesota and the players, Florida especially. The players wanted to have that count as hockey revenue, and obviously the owners wanted to continue to exempt that. They went to court. The owners ended up winning. Um, and so that's the standard right now to change that. That that would have to be a CBA thing, so that's one example okay. of revenue that's not considered hockey revenue. Now I want to bring in Chris because there was just a, a legal issue that was settled, and and uh, so let me let me bring Chris in. I know I know he was following this case pretty closely. It's about the concussion lawsuit, Chris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely want to tap into uh, Derek. Has done a lot of great work on that spring, but I want to bring up one last point to put a bow on this CBA thing. Seattle, Derek, is going to get voted on, I believe, on Monday. Mm-hmm. If I, uh, yeah. Now, we, we all know that uh, with the new powerful ownership group in Seattle, everyone's expecting a huge yes vote uh, this week, and the new ownership group wants to be in the league, drop the puck, October 2020, uh, and all mm-hmm. things being equal, we know that the league wants that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, as long as the as long as the, the arena and all that jazz is ready to roll, is it mm-hmm. possible that Seattle coming into you know to the league uh, could help the owners? I don't want to say break, but bend a little bit and help uh, get avo- all everyone uh, involved uh, avoid a work stoppage. Well, I think I don't think anybody and a work stoppage isn't good for anyone. Um, the, the owners can last longer than the players can because you're sure. because you're talking you're talking billionaires versus maybe millionaires if they're lucky. Um, so you know who's going to win. Um, but the, no, I don't think anybody wants a work stoppage. But could it help? Yeah, um, it could help. Be kind of what you what you're talking about an olive branch between the two sides. Um, as far as can the as far as the owners the owners can spin it either way. Um they can spin they can spin it as looking at all this expense that we're carrying um starting up the franchise or they can or they can spin it the opposite direction of we got a new campaign to really well so let's get it um and which way which narrative they spin will likely change based on the day, based on how the negotiations are going. So, Derek, walk us through this, uh, you know, not only this issue, this story has gotten enough uh, talked about enough, uh, just walk us through what the latest concussion lawsuit uh, was all about, who was involved, uh, give us mm-hmm. the the result, and what does it mean for the players in the league moving forward? Yeah. Um, well, these concussion lawsuits um, were – yeah, uh, filed a few years ago, and um, 
is currently being administered by, by a federal court in Minnesota. And there was about 150 plaintiffs, and they attempted to be certified as a class, like the NFL's concussion lawsuit, like what happened in there. That was denied, uh, which is something that really didn't surprise anybody because it's just really hard to prove that all of your situations were the same um, for that thing proof that things were so similar for all the members of the class and playing in different states and different countries even kind of nixed that. So what you, so what you had after that was about 150 individual plaintiffs who had individual lawsuits against the NHL going on simultaneously. So a few weeks ago, lawyers that represented many of those plaintiffs and lawyers from the NHL got together and negotiated a, a settlement deal that was announced a couple of weeks ago. Um, interestingly enough, the morning before the 2018 Hockey Hall of Fame announcement, which was a clever PR work there for the NHL. Um, right, right. Yeah, so uh, so, I've, so, the, so the settlement offer is tentative because it's obviously dependent upon those plaintiffs accepting those terms. They don't have to. It's completely up to them. Their lawyer, most of the lawyers are recommending them to take what the NHL is offering right now simply on the premise that it's probably the best deal that they're going to get. It's going to be very difficult in a, in a federal court to go in and substantiate the claims that they're making. And for those who may not be familiar with what the suit's all about, is in both Canada and the United States, by law, employers have a responsibility to inform their, all their employees of the, the type and the extent of the dangers to you physically, whatever, whatever have you, that you may incur in the course of being employed. By, the, by these companies. So what these people are alleging is that the NHL and its member franchises either should have known or knew about the possibility of, te- of traumatic brain injuries and concussions and failed to inform them. That's basically the, what they're trying to, to claim. So the NHL is offering this money to make all those, to hopefully make all those lawsuits go away. We've got at least a couple of players, Mike Peruso and Daniel Carcillo, um, that very publicly have said that they're not going to accept the settlement, that they want their day in court more than the money. So at least those two, if they stick to their guns, are going to play out. And we will actually see um, those trials happen. Um, I think the majority of the players are going to accept the settlement simply for the reason that this is probably the best deal that they're going to get from the NHL. But just to wrap up, uh, Derek, if um, you know, is that good for the NHL? Even if they settle, let's say ninety percent of these cases, if they get it down to just a handful of players who get their day in court, even if mm-hmm. they get the win financially in the end, that's not probably a place they want to be, though. At the same time, and and they somehow, I would think, want to, you know, get this problem not just solved for today but also potential lawsuits moving forward. Yeah, well, that's, you know, part of the settlement, actually. Um, and one of the things that 
that all the players who are considering whether or not to take the deal the NHL is offering right now needs to consider um, is if they take the money that the NHL is offering right now, one of the terms that they would agree to by taking that money is for the rest of their lives and on behalf of their families after they die, they can never bring any action against the NHL, any of its member franchises, anyone that they have ever had any contact with during their careers on behalf of the NHL or any of the teams for any health condition ever. They're completely identifying the league, all its teams, everyone for the rest of their lives and on behalf of their families after they die. Um, So that's definitely something that they'll have to weigh. Interesting. Well, when do you think we'll get a, uh, uh, get this, uh, get more clarity in this situation uh, with with the plaintiffs and who's going to accept and who's not? Well, I mean, I'm watching the docket as we go and basically, you know, that's a private deal between the NHL and them. Um, what terms exactly they settle to won't be public information unless the players decide to share that themselves. Um, but what can, what is public information is these players dropping their suits. That will be on the court docket. And so we, so I'll be continuing to watch the, the uh, docket of that federal court in Minnesota. And as these individual players drop their suit, it's probably a pretty good bet that that's because they've settled and accepted either these terms or some other terms that the NHL is offering. All right, Derek, we're right up against it. And uh, just one thing uh, I wanted to ask, are the, the escrow dis- distributions, are they, are they public knowledge? Like, do we know what a player who served 82 games last year, what his payout was? A sport track probably would have been on that um, on, a, on, a, on a yearly basis. That would probably be where I would go to find that out. Okay, but it's it's not an insignificant portion of money. So every percentage point yeah. that they can that yeah. they can argue into that CBA um, benefits everybody in the league, not just the upper well, crust of Mark, the league. Yes, sir. Mark, I've I've read in recent articles, and again, I don't want to take this as gospel, that basically somewhere between ten to fifteen percent of a player's salary gets taken out and goes to escrow. And in, in theory, the way this should work, they should get pretty close. If everything worked out, you know, projections became actual uh, and they played the necessary games, they would get pretty much most of that money back. So, But what's happening is a player, let's say, is taking getting 12 or 13% taken out for escrow, and then at the end of the year it gets 3 or 4% back. So at the end of the I day... Gotcha. He's 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 losing ten percent of his salary, and they they want some kind of uh, guarantee, certainty. more guarantees, certain more yeah. certainty that they'll sure. they won't lose as much on the escrow. But then the escrow is then tied to to the cap ceiling. So so if you made the escrow stronger from that standpoint, you would have to make the cap ceiling come down, which doesn't help the players in terms of the ones who. It's fine for the player who's signed for the next eight years, but someone who's is more uncertain. But then maybe the owners can give them that, but then they get something else in hockey-related revenue. So all these things are kind of tied together like that, from what I've read. Yeah, you got well, it. That's, 
That's why they make lawyers. Derek, thank you again for joining us today on the Vegas Hockey Podcast. We'll uh, we'll definitely have you back on as we get closer to the end of these discussions and and for the for the knowledge and, and thought that you can put into this for us. We appreciate you being here, everybody. You could follow Derek on Twitter at dhelling sports. He uh, he he's on he's on Twitter quite a bit. He updates his his timeline pretty often so if you're interested in how all these things are coming along um and a bunch of other stuff he writes on as well go 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 follow him on twitter he's a he's a real good follow for this side of hockey thank you thanks sir have a great day. all right well now we're, we're going to jump right into some edmonton oilers talk with rob Saria. you can follow him on twitter at oil underscore drop and uh, we've got a Vegas Golden Knights game tonight. And the last time they played, the next day they relieved uh, Todd McClellan of his duties. Rob, welcome to the show. And what do we take? Um, what have we seen in the first week since the the McClellan has been let go and, and Coach Hitchcock has been put in place? Thanks for having me back, guys. Always a pleasure. Sure. Um, yep. As far as uh, the differences, what we've seen so far. Yeah. It's been eh. somewhat, yeah, it's been minimal, right? It's it's typical. Like when there's that coaching change, um, the Oilers have, you seen as a whole, some guys are probably, I would say, maybe a little more fearful or focused for their spot in the lineup. So we've seen a little bit of that from some guys. But also what we have seen is uh, Hitch is starting to play guys, key guys even more. Like McDavid is pushing 25 minutes a night lately. Uh, wow. He's been pushing wow. cleft. Yeah, he's been pushing Clefbaum up to 25 a night. Uh, and even with Clefbaum the other day, he said he thinks there's more that he can play him. So, and really how they've kind of set up the line by leaving Dreisaitl with uh, McDavid, and they've put Chase on there lately, um, they're really starting to fluctuate their lines where McDavid gets that regular shift, and then he's seen double shift time at five on five with the fourth line. Uh, because that fourth line is kind of structured a little differently lately. So, yeah. And the big, the other big difference is they made that what has now become their third line, which was, or which, sorry, is now um, Brozniak, Lucic, and Cassian. You know, a line that can't score a goal if the life de- their life depended on it. But, hey, it is what it is. This is what life that's, is like here. It's uh, it's two players yeah, that's, and go. That's kind, <laughs> of a, that's kind of a Hitchcock style line if you go back and look at, at the Hitchcock he he's he generally loves to have a, a big physical line like that that may not put up offensive numbers but if they can kind of like the the Golden Knights fourth line where they don't really need to score as much as as change field position if if I can use a football analogy and and just grind that that puck into the offensive zone, pin it against the far boards, eat up a minute 40 o'clock physically, wearing down the other team. That's the Hitchcock's always going to have a line like that. Yeah, he does. You're right. And, and I think he also looks at it like, you know, I think he'd look at it and go, I wouldn't necessarily ideally want that lineup in today's NHL, but those players are there. And the issue is right. by putting them elsewhere, you know, they're kind of hooped. You know, so in the Lucci, might as well put them together. Yeah, and, and like Brodziak's a useful player, and you know, uh, Cassian can be a useful player when he's engaged, and Lucci can be a downgraded useful player of what he used to be, not for his price tag, obviously. Um, right. But yeah, so their their hands are kind of tied. But again, and, and it goes back to what has been the issue for the last couple of years. 
they had winger depth. They traded it all. So now, you know, if it wasn't for Chase on, you know, these guys, right. <laughs> the goals would literally be coming from nowhere. It's just dry sidle and McDavid. Kajula had a quick run earlier in the year, uh, but the only one who's been consistent with it is Chase on. Well, yeah, and as far as winger depth goes, there's been a couple roster moves since um, since Hitchcock to, took over. And if I saw the reports um, on Pugliarvi coming back up, that they kind of, Shirelli didn't really want to do that, but Hitchcock was like, you know what, let's just get him here, and I can work with him, and I can make him a better player where he's, where he's contributing. And then yesterday, uh, former second-round pick of the Kings, I believe, Valentin Zykoff was claimed off waivers for the uh, Carolina Hurricanes. And so now you're, one's within and one's really a – uh, low risk type of, of claiming where if he can get to, he's an AHL all-star last year with 33 goals scored. If he can bring a little bit of a boost somewhere on the wing and, and Pugliarvi can come up and, and, and be can, you know, contribute a little bit in the offensive zone. So now, now you're starting to see maybe a little bit of that, that production offensively to make up for some of the players that are a little offensively challenged. Well, yeah, that's what they hope. Um, but right. <laughs> we'll see, right? Like it's, all the exterior moves outside the, the system itself, the Oilers will never say it, um, but, you know, I'm sorry, but Shirley's hands have to be tied. If they're not tied, um, the upper, the, up, the higher-ups in management have to have their heads examined. You can't allow him to make anything but the types of moves he's been, ma- he's been making, like those types of um, little plays on the outside in and then go from there. Cause even still, man, like if you look at the deal, you know, Ryan Strom hadn't scored a goal here or sorry, he had one goal this year and yeah, the points weren't there, but Strom was at least a useful third line center. And he was basically even, you know, sawn off on his both on both ends of the ice, considering the line generated nothing offensively, but by removing him for Spooner, who hasn't done much, but in his defense, he came in the middle of a line of a coaching change. And like the last game, he, he was on the fourth line. It's like, well, if you put him on the fourth line, he's not going to do anything. And he was centering the fourth line, which is something he hasn't done in, uh, I think almost three, four years. That's when he first came into the league and he hasn't really played at that position um, since junior. So, you know, you got guys in spots that aren't necessarily going to succeed and the GM's hands have to be tied because he's made so many poor moves that right. if he goes and makes another deal, you know, you, he may, let's not kid ourselves. Like to say he's on the hot seat is a, is an understatement. You know, they both were coming into the season. They were either both going to go together at some point or the coach was going to go first because that's how this drill usually works, whether it's all his fault or not. Um, and yeah, you know, and Pugliarvi, uh I, I would I kind of disagree with you to a degree. I wouldn't say Shirelli didn't want him up. Shirelli never wanted him down. Let's not kid ourselves. That was, uh, okay. you know, it was it was more a question of McClellan. You know, McClellan took a lot of heat in this marketplace for how he used them, and right, rightfully so for some of it. Um, but on the other side, some of it, like especially last year, you could tell he was protecting the player in a situation that wasn't ideal probably for him for advancing, and he has flaws in his games, especially away from the puck. And it got to the point this year for the Oilers that, after the, the the slow start, and then they got they got hot there for a little bit, and then they started to slow down again. He wasn't in the position clearly as he lost his job. He's no dummy. Where he needed useful players that he could trust, and because Pulleyarvi wasn't showing enough to be used in a top six role, 
and he was struggling in other aspects. And he looked, and let's be fair, he struggles quite a bit when he's not playing with talent, which a lot of younger players will, because it's just not how they play the game. It's not how they see the game. So they end up sending him and Yamamoto down. So, you know, it was kind of a, a hit and miss scenario. And again, you are where we are now. We have Hitchin, who's a different type of coach. A lot of people will go on about how him and McClellan are, really really different but they're really not there's similar there are a lot of similarities between how they coach so but i think hitch has proven over and over again where he can come into situations and turn things around quickly and because the pacific is so terrible and the bottom half of the the bottom half of the west isn't that great the oilers can still have a chance to get into the playoffs and i think they would have even without a coaching change because of mcdavid so you know, so you got to make a move, and we'll see where it goes. So far, it's been okay, at least from a you know a wins total. But you know, well, you guys saw them play Vegas, the, the like you yep. said, the last game, like that was you know they they're that was the Oilers in a nutshell. They were they looked really good for what twenty three minutes, and then as soon as that two two goal went in, it was like the whole team just fell apart. And it wasn't even all on Talbot. who hasn't been very good, but like he wasn't even letting in poor goals. Like he couldn't stop anything. And, and they just literally, you know, just folded their tents and it was like done. So, and that, yeah, that's kind of been them in a tonight. nutshell. Yeah. Interesting game tonight. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to see how Edmonton, you know, responds and and one thing, and and, and I'm, I want to bring in Chris here in a, in a minute because all that being said, Edmonton's still only three points out of the third spot and again and a playoff position. Yep. And when we did did our Pacific Division preview this year, I I picked Connor McDavid to drag the Edmonton Oilers into the playoff either in that third spot or the uh, the second wild card spot. But I want to. That game against the Golden Knights, I can I can give them a pass for for you know wearing down in that game based on the Calgary game the night before. Is a high energy, high emotion output in that game. Uh, there's some Connor McDavid targeting that had to be paid back, and and the team stood up and paid it back. But I, I expected them to come out that night and be flat. At, I mean, it's a classic letdown game. If you're if you're at the sports book or you're betting a parlay, you're not going to bet Edmonton in that spot. Uh, it was, it was, it's tough to ramp back up after the game they had the night before. And I was really surprised that uh, Edmonton Twitter was as harsh as they were, and it was it was brutal for the, it was brutal for Oilers Nation that that night following along on Twitter. Um, as, as harsh as they were on their team, they were one point out of a playoff spot that night, and it was fire the coach, send everybody down, get rid of everybody. This team sucks. Less than 24 hours after a, a very emotionally uh, invested game that they had against Calgary. And just get your thoughts on how much you think the team should be able to bounce back after a game like that. And I think tonight will be a truer uh, a truer test of where they are as, as, as in relation to the golden Knights. Yeah. I, I, that weekend was an odd one, right? Because it had been mm-hmm. building like they had, been, there was, you know, a losing streak already that had started up the Calgary game. If you watch the Calgary game for the first two periods, it was, they dominated. And then yeah. the third period, the, the issue that occurred with the third period is it, the game completely flipped. Calgary dominated the game. And in-game, McClellan made the change where he put Lucic and Cassian onto the top two lines to help settle the nonsense that was going on earlier because of Mr. Young-Kachuk. And it worked. But in the third period, 
when hockey started to be played, they left the lines as is. And that, the way they lost, didn't help. And then the fact, and, and I totally agree with you with regards to the Golden Knights, but the funny thing is, with regards to that game, the Oilers pretty much dominated Vegas in the first period, which no one really expected. I think everyone was in your corner where you were expecting, especially after that type of game, that type of loss, that they may not be very good out of the shoot and need their goaltender to they did come out. They two. did come out firing, yeah. Yeah, yep. they were great. And like I said, they fell apart as soon as that 2-2 shorthanded goal went in. And I think all of that compiled with all the losing prior to how they'd been losing, um, the fact that, you know, they kept going to Talbot, who was struggling, and though Koskinen was playing well, um, and that it had really, again, become back to the either McDavid and Dreisaitl score or chase on, or they're done. And people aren't dumb, right? When you see that, it's a, a smart uh, – the smart hockey market out here that sometimes uh, lets uh, themselves be fooled, let's shall we say, with the Oilers tinted glasses for the longest time. But because this is they've struggled for so long, all that love that was there for Shirelli and the moves he was making, it's now become it's like a complete 180. Whereas you know, everyone spent. loved it. In, yeah, everyone loved it in 2016-17 because you know, the season went so well, but now after last season and this season, um, pretty much being the same thing, um, they're like, hey, what the hell is going on here? We we gave up player X, Y, and Z. We have no one to show for it. And it's like, hey, that was always the case. Just you guys kind of ignored it up until this point. So it's just all of it. it it's uh, it, it's an ugly situation. They, they wanted blood. They still do, to be quite honest with you. McClellan was the first of the two. And, and honestly, I, I tell you guys this, even if they were to make the playoffs, um, I honestly think they got to win probably two rounds for Shirelli to keep his job. Even if he goes to the playoffs and they win a round, I don't think he's going to be the GM next year. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Let me drag Chris in here. Uh, yeah, we've sure. been kind of monopolizing the time here a little bit. It's a good good talk. We're talking with Rob Soria, uh, author of Connor McDavid, Hockey's Next Great One, and and writer writer on a lot of sports. You could follow him on Twitter at oil underscore drop. So, so Chris, jump on in, in the conversation here, buddy. Yeah, so I wanted to make a point about Shirelli, and, and if you want to – classify it from make the playoffs to win around or get to the Western Conference Finals as the keep his job, if you will, to get Rob's sense of it. Um, you know, you look at it, they had a lot of depth at forward with a lot of talented young forwards. And they trade Taylor Hall for Adam Larson, who's still on the team. Uh, I don't get to see a lot of oil games, but it seems like he's a, you know, solid mid-tier defenseman. Jordan Eberle is traded for Ryan Strome, which is turned into Ryan Spooner. So, obviously, that's not how you want to use the asset allocation. And then even, you know, probably, and then even more so sinful than the Eberle trade was to deal with the Islanders to get Griffin Reinhardt, uh, who was supposed to be, a, a, you know, a core player, future core player on their blue line for years to come for them, who's no longer in the organization, and they gave up very valuable picks in the 2015 draft in rounds one and two. Now, look, every GM is going to have a deal that they wish they could have back. Uh, you know, there's always going to be in, uh, you trade a Phil Forsberg for a Martin Erat, but to, to have that on your on your resume within the last two and a half years, uh, that's a tough pill to swallow. Oh, yeah. 
and especially when you look at the the rest of the resume and you see Tyler Sagan getting moved and you see Blake Wheeler getting moved, like they're all different and I get it situation wise, but yeah, his resume speaks for itself. Right. And honestly, I think if one of those two moves don't happen, be it that Hall move or the Reinhardt deal, if one of those don't happen, I think we're, it's probably viewed a little differently because, like you said, um, yeah, well, I guess I, I, I would disagree a little. I don't think every GM has an ERAT uh, Forsberg type deal on his resume. I hope to God. Shirelli does, unfortunately. But uh, I think if you do, like, if you remove one of those, right, because although, see, this is weird, though, because from an Oilers standpoint, it's pretty clear everyone out here, if you talk to anyone around the team, they weren't drafting Barzell. So that's the part that sucks. Even if they would have kept that pick, um, well, they could have taken Kyle Connor. They could have taken Bosner. It would have been, been Eric. It would have been man. That's who it would have been, and that's the frightening part. Who hasn't really uh, panned wow. out to what he should have with Minnesota either, right? But again, that's all here. It's either here nor there because again, that pick never occurred. But let's say they bring in, like you said, a quality player or a Barzell, or you keep Hall. It's a different it's probably a different feeling around here, but because both of those occurred and then you toss in the Eberle, because again, Oilers fans, they, get, have a bit of a, they traded their depth and Eberle really got nothing for them. I mean, it gave them away. No, and, but it's funny because Oilers fans have a bit of re- revisionist history. A lot of them, because by the time the playoffs ended, when they lost to Anaheim and that, well, it was essentially the Eberle, whatever line he was on because he had played with different ones throughout that, that series. Part of it with Lucic and then part of it with um, Puglia on the wing with uh, R&H. So they didn't score that series. By the time the playoffs rolled around and it's inconsistent year the year before, I'd say probably 60 to 70% of Oilers fans wanted Everly gone. So now they call, they cry, they, they cry about it, but most of them were all calling for it to occur. Um, but you're right. I'm 100% with you. It's, it's a waste of an asset. And I, I've said this time and everyone knows where I stand on the Taylor Hall thing, so I don't even like to get into it. I didn't like it at the time. I didn't like it when they were run, went on their run in the playoffs, and I don't like it now. And I love Adam Larson, and I always have. So, you know, that is what it is. You can't do anything about that. But he, he's complicated matters further by doing what he's done. And they've, they literally have nothing coming like nothing it's it's pull RV as we were discussing earlier or Yamamoto there's a couple of kids oh yeah I guess in Tyler Benson as well uh, who's looked really good this year in Bakersfield and he stayed healthy there's maybe a couple other kids perhaps but up front they got nothing you know they got some kids so, coming maybe on the blue line but because of it um yeah so, it's so it's Rob how, how based on everything you've said to us the last 15-20 minutes uh, being a little bit of an analytical guy, I would say, okay, how, then how is it humanly possible that this team can go on a run in the playoffs unless McDavid, who's capable, or Drysaddle, who's capable, play gigantic minutes, and they end the playoffs, they play gigantic minutes, and they play out of their minds, or you get someone like Cam Talbot, who a couple of years ago, you know, made a uh, made a you know a deal with the deal with the devil or whatnot and played out of his mind for a full year, including the playoffs. How is it possible? I mean, how do they have the inventory to, for that to even happen? Well, 
Well, I, is that I mean, I it think, doesn't seem very possible to me based on everything we just talked about. Yeah, and I, I would agree with you. It's not likely, but in today's NHL, if you get an, enough goaltending, and we saw it with Talbot, be it him or Koskinen or whomever, if a goaltender can stop some shots he's not supposed to and other guys chip in a little in the playoffs, McDavid will carry them himself. Like, he just will. He's that good, you know. I guess some people, I, part of it, see, I'm in, the, I'm in that, that group where I was lucky enough growing up, I got to see Gretzky play. I got to see Lemieux play throughout their career. McDavid's a different player, but he quite literally, every time he's on the ice, the ice is tilted. Every, and it doesn't matter who's on the ice. Like, if you want more production, yeah, it's great to get him a winger who can score. Um, but the, the ice is tilted. So if you can limit what the other team scores, in a short series, anything's possible. Now, would the Oilers be favored to beat anyone in the playoffs? God, no. You know, if a goalie gets hot, though, and McDavid's McDavid, then, yeah, they could beat some teams. Um, do <laughs> Would I be surprised? Yeah, a little. But for me, I, I looked coming into the season as the Oilers as a bubbling playoff team. And I argued this point vehemently last year with so many, you know, media types and fans alike who said, oh, well, the, well what about the team last year, the 16-17 team? But like I said, 16-17 was literally, as you mentioned, Chris, everything went right for the most part. A lot right. of guys had career or close to career years. McDavid was McDavid. Talbot, well, I think, if I'm not mistaken, ended up fourth in dozen of voting, so he just ended up off the cusp of being and dominated. He had a tremendous year. Trophy. He did. He was fantastic, right? So, and the other thing people don't realize, and they always seem to forget, their defense in 16-17 was pretty good. Unfortunately, so many people in this marketplace look, looked at it as just simply, oh, look, you added Larson, you took away Hall, they're better, which is asinine, and it's someone looking at it not you know, with any view of what's going on. The actual thing was they added Larson. They essentially got Clefbaum back, who missed 55 games the year before, and as soon as he got hurt, they went in the toilet in 15-16. So you've added basically your first pairing back. They added Chris Russell, who I was totally fine with, with his first signing on a one-year. I think a lot of people in this marketplace that have the issue with the Chris Russell signing, it was the re-upping for four years at four mil. No one had took much issue with him signing a one-year at three mil. He was a perfect stopgap. So you added in three legitimate NHL defensemen. They brought in Matt Benning, who was decent as a rookie. And now all of a sudden, you went from quite literally what was an AHL defense. And that is being kind. It was an AHL defense by the time 15-16 was done. 16-17, it was solid. You know, was it great? No. But it was good enough. Guys were playing well. The goaltender was playing out of his mind. And you had the best player on the planet, despite people not calling him that. He's the best player on the planet. So next thing you know, they won some tight games. And as we all know, be it hockey or any sport, it's confidence, man. They got confidence. And once they get confidence, they go. And the last year and a half, it's been the opposite. They haven't been getting that save. They've been dealing with injuries. And then the confidence goes in the other direction. And then you can't beat anybody. To make one last point about Talbot that season when they went to the, the – when they lost to the Ducks in seven games, not only did he play out of his mind, he literally played every game that year for the Oilers, really, yeah. I think. Yeah. So yeah, he played, they, I think it was 70, what was it? I think it was 76. And no, then every 73. playoff game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. 
so, and the other thing so too you, that you have to remember with Talbot that year, and I and I don't and I don't I'm not even joking about this. There are many people in this media market and, and fans in this market as well who said yes, Talbot or um, sorry, McDavid was the MVP of the league. But if you ask them who was the Oilers MVP, almost all of Talbot. them said Talbot because it was such a switch from what had been the norm here for the previous five to ten years. Because, yeah, you take for granted what McDavid is, so you're going to get that. But what Talbot was giving them, it was completely, you know, so foreign to most Oiler fans of this era that it was just like, well, what's going on here? We're like every other team. We're getting saves. Yeah, absolutely. So along those lines with Talbot, um, Miko Koskinen is – I'm just looking at his numbers. He's been in 11 games, 7-2-1 with a 2.26, 9-24 save percentage. Um, I, I, I hadn't heard much about him. Um, 30 years old. He's, he's older than I thought he was. Um, one, I guess, are we going to see him tonight? And two, is is he just going to solidify and be the number one goalie for the foreseeable future there? Yeah, he is right now, like without question. Talbot's lost his last six starts. Um. And, yeah, Koskinen, who was uh, an Islander draft pick way back in the day, I think it was 04, if I'm not mistaken, Chris. You might yeah, want to confirm right. that for me. Yeah. Oh, no, um, yeah. But, yeah, and, and it was so, it was, you know, it was so long ago, and he's come back, and here everyone loves him, right, because he's stopping the puck. And he's playing really well right now. He's a, he's a he's huge. He's like six foot eight. He's a monster. Um, he's a big but, guy. Yeah, and but and that's today's NHL goalie. A lot of them, right? They sit and they block. He's got decent hands, which is nice to see because not all bigger goalies do. They just block the puck. He's a really good blocker side and a good glove. And leg wise, pads move well. He pushes cross crease fairly well, fairly quickly. Angles have been good. Um, the thing is, people have to realize is played. I believe it was 52 games, if memory serves correctly. Last two years combined in the KHL. If I'm not mistaken, I think KHL season is 56 games. So 52 games in two years is not, to me, a workhorse or a number one. So they're going to need another goalie. So either Talbot has to find his game um, or they go get someone else, like whatever the case may be. But the Oilers' schedule over the next, uh, I'd probably say six weeks, is pretty, I won't say easy, but soft from a standpoint of, uh, I think they have one back-to-back uh, travel isn't too bad. In their defense, they got hammered the first two months of the season with the travel and the trips they had. Uh, even coming back, it was a quick turnaround. So the schedule wasn't favorable to them. And if I remember correctly, I think from January on, they were at the start of the season, it was, they were viewed as to have by far and away the easiest schedule in the NHL. So they also right. have that in their back pocket. But Koskinen's been great. Like He's barely let in any poor goals. His rebound, rebound control is... So, so, he's been way better than Talbot lately, that's for sure. Um, Angley, position-wise, he's good. He stops a lot of breakaways. That's what I'll give him. Like, almost every game he's stopping a breakaway or two because the Oilers have that thing where they just, even last game, they scored that go-ahead goal against L.A., Clefbaum scored, and literally, it was about 40 seconds after the face-off, the Kings had a breakaway, and he stopped it. So, he does have to see, he does seem to have that knack to make that clutch save, which is huge. But, again, he's 30 years old. Um, is that going to last all year? I don't know. But it's certainly he's going to carry the load for the time being, Matt. They have no choice because the way Talbot's playing, he just can't stop a puck. 
Well, I, I can I can sympathize with you on on the the brutal early schedule. Uh, looking from the Golden Knights' point of view, they start off with five on the road through the Northeast, and then Thanksgiving week they do five games in seven days, three on the road, two of them in Canada. So you're going through customs. Then you're playing another road game before you go home for a back-to-back, um, all against division opponents. So uh, I, feel you on, I feel you on the schedule yeah. maker this, this season. It's been brutal for both clubs. Um, yeah. Well, the funny Chris, thing where, with the scheduling standpoint yeah. for the Oilers, just quick, guys, um, the Oilers didn't play their first specific game. Until that, so Calgary and Vegas were their first two games against a Pacific Division mm. team this year. Wow. So it took what six weeks, five weeks into the season until they actually That's faced crazy. a Pacific Division team. It's a, it's a little crazy, but they got tons of them. Obviously, the rest of the way. No, I want to say that's that's. I'm 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 pulling it up right now. I want to. They had an Anaheim game. I'm looking at the Golden Knights. Uh, they had an Anaheim game early on. Other than that, it was all the Northeast. Let's see, one, two. The Edmonton game uh, in the Thanksgiving week was their third division game. <laughs> so, yeah, so they're similar, pretty, right? pretty similar, pretty similar. Yeah. And, and all that being said, they're 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 both really right there in the playoff hunt. Chris, you got anything else for today? I think what's interesting just to note, and we're talking about the goaltending. Correct me if I'm wrong, Rob. Aren't both? Uh, unrestricted free agents at the end of the year. So Edmonton's going to have to make a decision what uh, how the season progresses, uh, if these guys will be back. And if not, who, who the heck's going to play goal for them starting next year? Yeah, for sure. And I think uh, I, I'm, I'm a guy who's been pretty uh, pro-Talbot, shall we say, all along. I expected a bounce-back season this year. It hasn't happened. Um, Charlie took a lot of flack for the Koskinen deal. Not so much that he signed him, but that he gave him two and a half Mill and then mid, I think it was the first week of the season or last week of preseason. I can't remember. They found out they gave him a no movement clause too, so people were losing their mind. Not like it really matters, but the fact right. of the matter is, the two and a half million I I got from the outset what Shirelli was doing. I really did. I looked at it from I was like, here's two and a half million. You might need that extra mill and a half to help fill up some holes in the rosters. So that part of it I didn't like, but I got what he was doing. He was going to get a veteran goalie who hopefully was a reclamation project. We've seen it work before for other teams where guys come over from the KHL or somewhere in Europe and they, and their career is re-energized. Well, if you take this guy in at two and a half million on a one year deal and Talbot slips, so he proves that he can play well, then you might have a starter for a couple of years on the cheap, because if I'm not mistaken, and Chris, you might be able to let me, you might be able to fill me in on this too. I heard one of the rumors in the, before Koskinen signed that the Islanders had, offered him uh, something in the neighborhood of a two-year deal in and around a mil and a half to two a year. So if they were, they were, I did hear, yeah, I did hear they were talking with him. I didn't know to, to what, to what extent. And at that point they hadn't signed Leonard. So, uh, uh, yeah. So they, and so at the end of the day, they, yeah, he wound up going to Edmonton and and they wound up going uh, with Leonard and Grice. So, and ironically, it's worked out pretty good. Well, else some way. It's amazing. Yeah. Barry Trotz, I yeah. tell you one thing, not to, 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 uh, but he, the, the fact that how well the Islanders are playing defensively and how well they're playing in goal, Barry Trotz and, and, and Mitch Korn should get some kind of uh, – uh, it, it just – you know what it goes to show, a friend of mine said recently, it is just amazing, goes to show you when, when a team is not getting good coaching to when they're getting superior coaching in this league. 
how much of a difference that can make. I mean, oh, I mean, yeah. you look at the Islanders' numbers last year on defense and goaltending were not only the worst in the league, they were the worst in the league in almost a decade, I believe. So to have basically the same personnel and then go from to be going from that to towards the top of the league, it, it, it's a statement of what what top coaching can do in the National Hockey League. Yep. I agree wholeheartedly. And and you'll hear people will say similar things here if the Hitchcock thing ends up panning out. And while I agree with it to a certain extent, I don't to an extent because on the Oilers side, that is, because I think McClellan's a good coach. He's limited in, in things that he does. He's, again, an old-school coach who sometimes looks at things a certain way. But as we mentioned earlier about Hitch, he has that ability to come in and fix things for a short term quickly. So if he does it, to me, that doesn't make – McClellan than a bad coach I think it's just three years and now like I was saying earlier the frustration and confidence is an issue you start to bang your head and if you're a coach you're looking at the roster going well what the hell do you want me to do like I don't have the horses how am I supposed to try and get this out whereas in New York it's a different story because if we're comparing trots to weight that's not even a discussion you know or even Capuano or exactly or Capuano as well like it doesn't that's not a discussion you want to have because I'll tell you this. What would that Islanders team look like Tavares on it? You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I mean, I mean not With to beat up Capuano on own weight, but, he, he, yeah. but even if I said they were, let's just, I'll be kind. Let's say they were average coaches, which I don't think they were. But let's just say yeah. they were. To go from an average coach to, and maybe I'm biased, to Trotz, who's probably one of the top three or four coaches in the game, uh, to yeah. a, a top, top-notch coach, you do that for any team? There's going to be, you're going to see a lot more wins, especially in the regular oh, yeah. season, uh, for, for that team. Now, you know whether or not he can will them with his systems and stuff, get them in the playoffs. That doesn't mean he's going to be the Tampa Bay in round one as the wild card, or you know or Washington, or that's a whole different kettle of fish. But um, yeah, I, it has it really shown me it's something probably I already knew, but I've seen it really bright and clear of just when you have a top top coach how much of a difference maker it can make in the National Hockey League. Well, well, Chris, you can look at it the other way, too, and you go back to the the Islanders-Florida Panthers series. Uh, great series. Gerard Gallant was the runner-up for coach of the year that year. Um, uh, franchise high, I think, with 109 points that season. And they trade away, you know, two-thirds of his defense that off season trying to remake it in an analytical sort of way instead of what he had and he's 11 10 and 1 and they call him a cab um yeah well, that, well the, you, the could, argue, you, you could argue well they, hold on let me finish my point you yeah. could argue that this team now has more talent uh and skill and speed than that team did and they're they're they haven't sniffed the playoffs since and and it's because Gerard Gallant was run out of town. And we've seen what he can do uh, with the Vegas Golden Knights with, some might say, average skill. Um, they definitely have work ethic and compete and speed. But as far as skill, we talked earlier that they don't have that, that Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby type, Al Sovechkin player. But you've seen what his coaching can do um, with a group that's, let's say, B, B minus on, on skill. Um, so yeah, if you look at it the other way, I'm wearing my, I got my, my Vegas glasses on right now. So, okay. Even, even if I say C level skill, um, yeah, across look the at what, he, look at, 
look at what Gallant has been able to do with that club. Um, oh, yeah. so well, the irony, the, point, Mark, the, irony exactly of, right. the irony of that Panther Islanders series where the Islanders won was the Panthers, if you go back and look at statistically any way you want to slice it, at ice time, analytically, puck position, they dominated that series. The Islanders found a way to win that series in six games because of two reasons. One, John Tavares played out of his mind yeah, in that series yeah. and was beyond an impact player. But two, which everyone probably forgets about, the the not, as great as Tavares was in that series, and was tremendous. Their number one star in that series was Thomas Grice, who played yeah. out, played out of his yeah. mind, and that over that was the reason why they and I think they won three overtime games in that series, and that was the reason why they found a way to get that extra goal to win that series. But if you you know there's there's no Florida was the better team. Florida, but the Islanders won the series. Would it be would it be uh, on, on a stretch for me to say if Gallant had stayed in in control there in Florida that with the talent that they've got since then that may be and the talent on that roster right now that may be the consistency in coaching that's a Stanley Cup contending squad is that too far to go? I'll give you. I'll give you. A be, I'll give you a better point in terms of, uh, in terms, and I like to get Rob's point on this in terms of the Vegas standpoint. So Florida wins that series like they should. Gerard Gallant winds up staying in Florida for the long term. Is probably currently the head coach. Hence, and not in Vegas. The Islanders have a another year where they don't win the uh, a playoff round, which goes back to at that point was 1994. Uh, yep. The ownership would probably let Garth Snow go. And, and promote George McPhee to become the new Islander GM. <laughs> and so today, you would not yeah. have McPhee and Gallant, either of them, in Vegas. So what do you, what do you have think... to put it all together going back to Vegas? Certainly reasonable. Well, well my, yeah, yeah. And, and with my, my, my opinion on it, guys, with that, that's tough to say with the Vegas thing. But I honestly think as much, as, as much credit that guys like McPhee and Gallant deserve, for LA, for Vegas, I mean, sorry, they and they do. That whole thing last year was a little, that was a little bizarre. Let's not kid ourselves. Like they had for guys sure. that, as as a collective, that group was fantastic. And again, I think we had this discussion last year. The situation that led up to that season, uh, as unfortunate as it was for the community out there, certainly helped. I think bring not only them closer to the community, but I think them as players, as a as a collective closer to each other together. Yeah. And Absolutely. then once they started to win and then Gallant's one of those guys, you can tell where it's uh, he buys in, right. He'll get that buy-in from his players. And yeah, like you guys said, they, they don't have any star players, but what I will say with Vegas last year is if you were, <laughs> I looked at Vegas this way. I was like outside of flurry who was when he's on still a, a top flight net minder. Oh. Um, yep. The rest, yeah, let's ask Pittsburgh how they're enjoying that Murray uh, yeah. season these days. Um, <laughs> but, the, but the rest of that lineup, if you look at them, I looked at them as you're looking at middle six forwards and probably number three on average, number three, three to defensemen. five defensemen. And yeah. because of that, they have, yeah, they may not have that top end, but they didn't have that bottom end. So Correct. everyone they had was good. They weren't great, right. but they weren't bad. So <laughs> because good. they were yep. good. They depth. And they had yeah, full buy-in. They had, yeah, they had middling middling depth. 
full buy-in, guys playing really well, and the goaltender playing like it was, you know, 10 years ago. Once yeah, he well, got into be, yeah. Yeah, and well, not the other thing. They survived while he was hurt, and they were on goalie number 10, you know. Like, it made no difference. They found ways to win, you know. And I think Vegas, to be fair, is getting a bit of an unfair shake this year because I think anyone who's expecting no kind of step back were dreaming because how would you expect them to, to elevate through the season to where they were? But if I'm speaking honestly here from an Oilers standpoint, the way Vegas is starting to play could keep the Oilers out of the playoffs because I only, I honestly thought the only way they were going to get in is that three seed. Um, and yeah, they might be able to get in as eight now, but Vegas is playing far too well, I think. And they have better depth than the Oilers. So unless McDavid can, you know, pull them kicking and screaming even more on more nights, it'll be hard to overtake them. And Calgary's for real. If they keep getting decent standing and, yeah, and even San Jose is as so-so as they've been. The point is they're so-so and they're still there. So right. I don't see San right. Jose getting any worse. They'll, they should, even if they don't hit to the level that some saw, which I never really looked at them as a Stanley Cup favorite like some people did, um, they're still plenty good enough to win that division unless Calgary starts getting some real goaltending. All right, Rob, thanks for joining us. we got about a minute and a half left, so we got to let you go and wrap this up, sir. Thanks. It was great talking with you again, as always, and, and we'll talk to you down the road, sir. Sounds good, guys. Have yourselves a wonderful holiday season, because I'm sure we won't speak before then. Yes, you, you as too, well, Rob. and good luck tonight. Thanks, Matt. Take care. All right, Chris, take us out. What's on tap? Next week, we got uh, someone from the Seattle Sinbin, Doug Mellon, uh, we got the big vote this week with Seattle, so we're gonna we're gonna yep. talk a little Seattle hockey and Perfect. pick his brain, and maybe he'll pick our brain too from a from a Vegas standpoint yep. what to expect. So that should uh, be fun. And we'll 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 finally get a resolution on William Nylander over the next ninety minutes. So we'll talk about that next week, and obviously the week the yep. Knights had, and probably a couple other things. All right, buddy. Have a good week, and and we'll talk to you, you talk to you throughout the week, and we'll figure it out. And next week ought to be a great show talking expansion with the Seattle Sandbin guys. They're real good guys, and I look forward to talking with them again. But for now, we're out of time for Chris on Mark, and we're gone. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,